On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dawn Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dawn group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dawn's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. And as always, I am joined by the wonderful and talented Stefania. Steph, how are you? I'm good, Michael. Thank you again for starting my day off on such a positive note. I really look forward to it every day. How are you doing? Good, good. You know, busy times, but as mm-hmm. I've said before, you know, I, I like to be busy. I think it's it means things are happening in our sector. And there is a ton happening. What's happening at CAEH? Well, as you know, we just wrapped up uh, the election on Monday. And and while vote housing, it means that we may not be uh, that everyday sprints, but we're definitely not going away. We will be following up with all the the, uh, successful candidates, our our new uh, MPs, and, you know, making sure that housing and homelessness uh, makes it to the speech from the throne that'll be around the corner. Absolutely. The election was the first step. And now, hey, this is where uh, we find out uh, where the action really takes place. So once we know who our MPs are, now that we do, we can follow up with them and push them to keep housing and homelessness uh, top of mind for sure. And speaking of top of mind, I know we have some awesome guests today. Um, Would you like to introduce them? Absolutely. So today we are have two incredible people joining us. Uh, first, I would love to introduce Dr. Caitlin Schwann. She is Director of Research for The Shift, an international movement to secure the right to housing. And she's also a senior researcher at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness and teaches social policy at the Uni- University of Toronto's Faculty of Social Work, where she is appointed assistant professor status only. Also, she co-leads the Women's National Housing and Homelessness Network. Caitlin's research focuses on homelessness prevention and human rights, particularly for women and youth. We are also joined by the incredible Kulud Beg. She's housing researcher with Keepers of the Circle and the Women's National Housing and Homelessness Network as well. She has significant experience in community-based and participatory research with a focus on gender-based analysis of housing and homelessness policy. Previously, Kulud has led housing files at the City for All Women's Initiative and Native Women's Association of Canada, and her key focus in all her work is to create and hold space for lived experiences, voices, 
in decision-making. Kalud and Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was good. That was good. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. So thrilled to be here. Yeah, we are, we are exceptionally thrilled to have both of you on. Um, again, as I was noting, you know, today is a really amazing, exciting day, a result of, I know, a ton of work from both of you and the networks and folks that you work with. Um, so today, yeah, like I mentioned, the release of the largest national survey on women's housing and homelessness. Can you, uh, Caitlin, perhaps, can you give us a bit of background about the survey released today? Yeah, I sure can. And I just want to share your excitement. We're so thrilled to be releasing the Pan-Canadian Women's Housing and Homelessness Survey. Um, this is something we've been working on over the last year and a half with the Women's Network. Um, and the goal with it was really to create a national portrait of what homelessness and housing need looks like for women, girls, and gender diverse folks in Canada. Um, so as probably most listeners will know, we have um, point in time count data, we've done a range of national surveys, but we haven't yet had kind of a very gender specific national survey looking at women and gender diverse folks. So that, that was our goal with this. Um, and we worked with 500 women and gender diverse folks across Canada to, to do this survey. And we were really kind of looking to understand what are the key housing challenges that folks are experiencing what role do public systems like child welfare or criminal justice play um, in creating pathways into homelessness? And we were also thinking about this uh, really from a rights-based place. So, so what are the human rights violations that this group is experiencing and, and where is the policy and practice change needed to better support? Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this today. We're, we're really releasing this survey at a difficult time, I would say, with respect to women's homelessness in Canada. Um, you know, for years, obviously it's been true that women are more likely to experience poverty, to work minimum wage jobs, um, often have a greater burden of care for children and, and struggle with housing, have, uh, are more likely to be in core housing need. But over the last two years, this has really been exacerbated um, because of COVID. So, uh, women in minimum wage jobs are, especially racialized women, are kind of experiencing layoffs um, with limited savings. There's been a huge increase in evictions um, that's really impacting particularly low income and single parent women across the country. So folks who, you know, never would have imagined that they're experiencing homelessness are, are finding themselves uh, at the door of shelters for the first time in their lives. And, and for other women, you know, staying at home because of COVID has really meant being trapped in situations of violence and abuse um, or, or risking violence on the streets. And this is all occurring against, you know, a, a broader background of financialization of housing in Canada and kind of the erosion of affordable housing. Uh, so as many of you might know, Steve Pomeroy did some great work and found that, you know, we're, we're building uh, for every affordable rental housing unit in Canada that we're building, we're actually losing 15. And those, that loss of those units are really disproportionately impacting women, racialized women, Indigenous women, um, and women who are kind of the sole, sole caregiver. So it is an, a really important moment to be, to be releasing this, including during an election period, 
where housing has emerged um, as a key issue and very rightly so. Um, so very excited to be here talking about this work today. Wow, and such such powerful information. Um, just if you could expand on, maybe you could expand on why was the publication created? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we, we this work kind of started more than a couple of years ago now, if, if you were really to count time, and it's been crazy how fast time's been moving, but it started with our national literature review when we worked together with a whole slew of partners and um, a lot of women and gender diverse folks that sit at the Women's National um, Steering Committee just to essentially seek out what sort of information is available on women and gender diverse folks, uh, housing and homelessness issues. And we we conducted this really massive sur survey of literature, look at, looked at all the research and found that consistently women and gender diverse folks were being missed in counts of homelessness, in data, in the information that was available out there. And that's a really critical gap because that means that policy that's being made or evidence that's being collected to make policy, it is consistently missing uh, women and gender diverse folks. So that's really where we were at uh, when we conducted the literature review. And that's what led us into the survey process is to collect really important data and to collect data that is gendered in different ways. That's collecting information on you know, mental health, on pathways um, to access stability once women have been um, you know, made homeless due to violence or made homeless due to evictions, or you know, what does poverty look like particularly for women? And then how do they sustain themselves when they're in these experiences of deep and chronic poverty? So it's really not just collecting data or not just collecting information on what women's experiences are when it comes to housing and homelessness, but also what are those other factors that are making those experiences happen and maintaining and continuing those experiences. So it's not, it's, I guess it's not just collecting information that is pertaining to women and gender diverse folks, but also collecting information in a way that's sensitive to different gendered pathways within housing and homelessness. So that's really what this survey does. And that's really this huge gap that this survey hopes to address and provide evidence when policy is being is being made to make sure that homelessness and housing is uniquely considering the circumstances that women and gender diverse folks go through. And it's not just using one size fits all policy approaches to address homelessness in Canada because women's homelessness is looking drastically different. And the, the outcomes that we're seeing for women, the housing outcomes that we're seeing for women are drastically different because um, of of their gender and because policy is always gendered. So so that's really what was behind us uh, creating the survey. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, Complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Absolutely. And it's such an incredible effort. And I'm so glad you mentioned uh, the lit review that uh, 
came before this, um, which was launched at the height of the pandemic, I think right at the beginning. Um, and I encourage everyone to go to womenshomelessness.ca to check it out if you haven't already. Um, and, and this question is for both of you. What can folks expect to learn after reading this, this survey findings? Well, there is some really rich data in this one, I would say. Um, what we tried to do was, you know, it's always difficult to make research extremely accessible, but what we tried to do was organize the findings into kind of 10 key pieces. Um, and there's a couple that really stood out for me that I think make a contribution to our, our understanding of this issue. Um, so first of all, what we saw, and I mean, it'll be no surprise that, that folks who participated in the survey are experiencing really deep forms of chronic poverty. Um, many folks uh, often after, if they had housing after they paid for their housing had $0 left, um, but on average folks had um, a, a little less than $600 a month to pay for food, transportation, medical necessities, but also um, support for their children or, or any dependents. So really, really low um, income that folks are, are trying to survive on. But what we found is that many of these women and gender diverse folks, even though they're receiving social assistance of some kind, they have to engage in at least two or three additional strategies to bring in income in order to survive. So top amongst those were uh, a third of folks are accessing food banks, um, almost a third are just skipping paying bills. Um, and uh, a quarter are about about a quarter are working under the table in some form of labor. Um, so what this really points to is obviously the severe insufficiency of social assistance rates. So folks are receiving social assistance, but they're also having to do two or three or four additional activities to try to just survive. Um, and what was very interesting in particular, I think this is important with COVID, the COVID context as well, is about a third are, are using credit cards, are borrowing money or are going to kind of money marts um, in order to get cash advances in order to you know, meet their basic necessities. So we have a group of people who, whose debt is increasing each month. Um, and as that debt grows, uh, women are in, and gender diverse folks are increasingly kind of put into a corner where they need to engage in various kinds of labor that may put their risk, their health at risk, may put their safety at risk, um, may uh, put them in positions where they're exploited or experience violence. Um, so the lack of political will to really address the social assistance issue that, you know, for so many of us in the sector, I mean, we've been We've been saying this for, for decades and decades, it's just not enough. Um, what we're seeing is that the impacts for women are, have very huge implications, not just in terms of debt, but in terms of safety, uh, well-being, and, and being able to remain with one's children. So that's, that's a key piece. And the second piece that I, I wanted to call out um, that was very important is that we also found that 79% of these 500 women and gender diverse folks that did our, our survey, 79% reported having a disability. And this is a huge number. Um, it may be slightly higher because we did have a lot of participants from, from low barrier uh, services who are accessing drop-ins or shelters, 
But even for folks who uh, were experiencing hidden homelessness or core housing need, 79% of this group is experiencing a disability um, and 60% actually had a physical disability. So there is a huge uh, intersection between the gendered experience of homelessness and disability uh, is really what the, these, this survey found. And not just one disability, on average participants had three disabilities and some reporting up to having 11. Um, and you know, it, so this is important for many reasons, but one of the things we found is that for folks who had disabilities, they were likely to be turned away from a shelter at twice the rate of people who don't have disabilities. So this is like a huge equity issue, a human rights issue um, that we need to be getting a handle on um, and, and really requires that we do kind of a sector audit around what, how we're approaching accessibility of emergency services, but, but also across the housing spectrum because women and gender diverse folks with disabilities are, are suffering tremendously. And Kalud, I know you'll have you'll have other excellent thoughts on kind of what stood out for you on this survey. Absolutely, I think you've captured so many valuable points, Caitlin. I just I think I'll just build on what you said. Um, you know, we we I previously talked about how the survey does a really good job of highlighting housing is not an isolated issue, and I think you know just in terms of how housing is being talked about right now in public discourse. I think people are more and more waking to this fact that housing is an income issue, housing is a health issue, housing is an issue of you know, discrimination. And we're seeing, you know, when we do an intersectional analysis of the findings, we find that, you know, people who are racialized, people who are indigenous, people who are living with disabilities, gender diverse people are experiencing housing outcomes. There's a disparity in their housing outcomes compared to people who are abled or people who are, you know, um, white. So there are all of these disparities that are highlighted in our survey and I think are really important. But a couple of things that I really wanted to bring attention to is this, this, this idea of income and how um, particularly for people who are accessing uh, government provided social assistance or, you know, government subsidies for housing, those rates are not keeping up with the rate at which housing is being financialized in Canada. So that disparity or that gap is becoming bigger and bigger and pushing people into deeper um, uh, disparities and disadvantages where people are literally forced to choose between food and housing. And that's one of the other things that we saw in the in the survey and we made a point to is that um, food bank usage is actually one of the highest uh, sustenance strategy that people use. So, you know, a lot of people who are trying to housing or trying to keep a roof over their their head lose out on the choice of buying food or you know choosing foods that they want and are forced into using food banks so really in the, at a larger scale what we see is housing not just really being about the four walls that you live within but it really being the core aspect that ends up deciding for you what you're going to eat how your kids are going to live, you know, for a lot of people, this is also uh, housing is one of the key um, um, aspects that allows them to keep their kids because child welfare involvement is so high for people who have precarious housing and that becoming an issue. And all of these really are primarily bigger issues for women or, or gender diverse people because they are primary caregivers a lot of times in their families and they're taking care of seniors or kids. So 
it's it's really crazy to me how and and I think the survey does such a good job of it of illustrating all of these different aspects that get impacted and that are so deeply tied to housing you know we've we've heard traditionally about safety and women's safety particularly in housing but you know thinking about things like income assistance rates or you know food or you know children and the ability to keep your children safe is all so deeply tied to housing and particularly housing for women so it's it's really important I think um, and I, I'm sure once people read the survey I think they're going to read through all of these different things is to think about housing as more than just building a four wall and thinking beyond what what that means and how people can really access that and be stable within that so um, I think that for me really pops out absolutely absolutely um, you know so my day job we don't uh, we don't do the podcast full-time my day job I'm at Blue Door and we're a service provider and uh, so my question is to Caitlin around how can program and service providers like Blue Door who implement policies avoid uh, perpetuating gender bias in service delivery? Oh, such a good question. Thank you, Michael. Um, so when I, when I look at our, our data that we collected, there's a few things that stand out for me um, in terms of helping service providers kind of think this through. Uh, I think a great first step would be for organizations like Blue Door and others to do an audit of where are their gaps in safety and service delivery that is actually impacting women and gender diverse folks. And to some extent, this is often linked to funding and how it's structured. Um, we know nationally only 13% of funding goes to women specific beds in shelters and 68% goes to men's, men's specific beds or co-ed, which, which women will avoid. So just at a very basic kind of numbers level, we're not seeing the level of um, services that are needed for women, uh, but it's important for organizations to do to do that audit and see where where gaps are. Um, almost a third of the women actually that that completed this survey said that they they couldn't get a shelter bed when they needed one. And I, I wanted to read a couple of quotes from people because we asked them, okay, well, what happened next when you couldn't get a shelter bed? Um, and just very quickly here, a couple of answers. So we heard from folks, uh, from a woman that said, uh, I slept on the streets or in cars. Another person said, I stayed awake all night looking for a friend to take me in usually. Uh, another person said, I left and spent the night sleeping in the lobby of a nearby hospital. I slept outside or I slept with a man for a place. I slept outside and when I did, the police arrested me and stole my personal belongings. I begged a friend to let me stay with him and in exchange, I cleaned his apartment. So those are some of the consequences of women being turned away um, on any given night from a shelter. So, so doing, this, doing this kind of audit, but the consequences of turning women away um, for any number of reasons are, are so significant. Um, it's really critical that we're Ensuring, ensuring equitable access to services and shelters. And, and some of that I think is gonna re require advocacy on the part of organizations. Um, you know, municipalities and, and provinces and territories and, and the feds need to understand these are, the, you know, this is what we're dealing with. This is, this is the consequences when we have to turn women and gender diverse folks away. 
So doing, doing that general audit is really key. And I, I also, I mean, as I spoke to some of the disability findings, we really need to, to have organizations doing a, 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 an audit on accessibility. Um, we saw in the data that shelters are inaccessible to folks with physical disabilities at, at three times the rate uh, of those that don't have those disabilities. This is a huge equity issue. Um, so again, getting, and I think particularly getting lived experts to participate in developing and structuring what those audits uh, look like is, is very key and then co-developing the solutions. Um, we, we also had the chance to ask uh, participants in the survey, you know, what were their top challenges that they experienced in shelters and drop-in? And we found that almost a quarter felt uh, they'd experienced some kind of discrimination from shelter or drop-in staff, uh, also high levels of discrimination from other folks who are using the services. Um, and uh, you know, it was quite heartbreaking. We saw that almost a, felt, uh, a third felt that they didn't belong there, that um, you know, they, were in the, they, they weren't welcome. Um, so there, I think there's a, a real need to, for organizations to think through um, training and support to ensure staff obviously have anti-oppressive, anti-discrimination training, um, ensure that frontline workers are equipped uh, with like particularly a trauma-informed approach uh, for working with women and gender diverse folks. And uh, this is certainly true, like the, as, as we've seen uh, the opioid uh, crisis deepen across Canada, there's such a tremendous need for harm reduction in services for women who are experiencing housing need and homelessness. Um, and, and again, would just deeply encourage organizations to be co-developing those solutions with women and gender diverse folks who are living those realities and can guide organizations on, on how to do that well. Absolutely, it speaks to the nothing for us without us, right? And we, we've got to get out of the practice of just saying, hey, we know what's right, or we know, uh, we know the solution and including those voices uh, in everything. That we do. That's so helpful. Uh, where can people go to find out more information? Yeah, just go to womenshomelessness.ca. Uh, we have all our research up there. Um, you can follow us on all our social media channels as well. Um, we're pretty active on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, for, for us at the Women's National Housing and Homelessness Network, if this is an area you're interested in, if you're thinking about it, if you have questions about it, we're just ecstatic to talk to you. So please reach out to us and, and just have a look at what we've got on our website as well. Well, that's amazing. And like Michael said, just like slamming that agree button um, as gently, that sounded very aggressive, but you know what I mean? Um, this has just really been an amazing conversation, like just totally meeting and exceeding expectations. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to thank you both again for taking time. This is a very busy day for you um, with the release of the survey and all the work that you do. Thank you both for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. So, so wonderful to be here with you today and excited. Very excited. Well, Steph, that was awesome. We had another two great guests. I'm, ex I'm so excited uh, for this report to drop. How are you feeling about it? Good. And you know what? Uh, I hope people read this survey analysis far and wide. It's the largest of its kind uh, for any homelessness population. I hope it inspires more work like this. And I just think it, 
you know, it's always good to have more information. You know, anecdotally, we know the experience for women and gender diverse peoples on the street. But I think when we start to see it in, in this kind of survey, in this kind of analysis, you know, we can hand it to our leaders in power to be like, hey, we need to address this. Here's some recommendations. Let's get it done. Yeah, and to steal a line from a few good men, Tom Cruise, I remember he was saying uh, as a lawyer, he said, it doesn't matter what I know, it only matters what I can prove. And that's exactly when you're in the field. And it doesn't matter what you know, because we know this information, a lot of it we know, but now we can prove it. Good data makes a difference and it makes things happen. And, and this absolutely is going to do that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I think this was a really important episode to do. Absolutely. Check it out, get involved, share it widely. Steph, we'll see you next time on another episode. See you then. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.